You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, folks, and welcome to episode seven of the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast. My name is Phil Walker, uh, editor in chief of Wisdom Cricket Monthly. Um, I'm joined today by Joe Harmon, magazine editor of WCM, and Patrick Noon from CrickViz. Afternoon, gentlemen. Afternoon. Uh, thank you for joining us. We're in that delicate little interregnum at the minute between the end of one test series and the start of another. England, of course. Uh, sitting pretty after a 3-0 uh, whitewash of Sri Lanka, um, gearing themselves up for the West Indies in January, another three tests out there. Uh, and of course, Australia and India are preparing, uh, girding their loins, ready to go at one another over four tests uh, over the next month and a half. Uh, before we get to those those two, um, the review and the preview, um, we just want to just want to have a look at the last week in cricket and Joe Harmon. Uh, what is your moment of the week, please? Uh, my moment of the week actually just came through on my emails a couple of hours ago. Um, been anticipated, but has now been confirmed that the ECB have changed their eligibility rules. So rather than having to serve a seven-year qualification period, three years will do the job, uh, which conveniently means that Joffre Archer, um, Sussex and West Indies-born all-rounder is now, as of January, eligible to, to play for England. Good timing with the Ashes and a World Cup round the corner. Uh, he's already tweeted to say that he would love a chance to make his debut in front of his family out in the Caribbean. Right, has he really? He has, yeah. Oh. Um, and I think, I mean, I'd be amazed if he's not in the, the white ball squads for that tour. Um, probably an outside chance that he might be in the test squad as well. For that tour, you think it can come as early as that? Well, possibly. They might want him around the group. I think it would be an in- it's a really interesting development because there's been some pressure on Stuart Broad already. Obviously, he didn't play for the... The first two tests in Sri Lanka. James Anderson keeps getting better, but he is actually getting older, no matter what the stats suggest. Uh, mm-hmm. And he can't go on forever. So I think this is really, really important for England to come through. And he's going to be putting on some serious pressure, particularly in that one-day team. There's been a if there is a weakness, it's their bowling. Um, Liam Plunkett, Mark Wood will be feeling the heat now. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Patrick, what's your moment of the week? My moment of the week is from Colombo when uh, Jack Leach um, pulled off a remarkable bit of fielding to run out Kusil Mendes. It broke a 102-run partnership that was just threatening to put Sri Lanka into the driving seat in that test. And yeah, it was all come on to it, but it was another example of England sort of finding a way, winning the big moments through one bit of skill or another to tilt the tide in their favour. Yeah, so there, it was about 180-odd for four, at the, I think, at the time. Was, is that right? Uh, and five, ne- 184 for five, and then, yeah, that's... Needing the about 140, 150-odd. 100 to win, it was. 100 yes. to win at the time, so, right. Yeah, Proper so. bullet arm as well, wasn't it? I yeah. have to say, I didn't know he had it in him. <laughs> I'm not sure he knew himself. Uh, <laughs> I, I interviewed him, actually, yesterday morning. Um, he, it was his last day in Sri Lanka. He was sitting in his hotel room, and, and we had a chat over the phone. Um, and I asked him for his moment of the winter and without hesitation, he said, oh, the run out, the run out, the run out. And I said, OK, but you've taken 18 wickets here and established <laughs> yeah. yourself as a, as a left arm test quality spinner. No, no, they just want to talk about the run out. And, yeah. and I think you're right. I think it does tap into to a sense of a, of a kind of versatile and adaptable team. Yeah. And he gave a really refreshing interview after the, after the match. I don't know if you saw it where he was asked, um, is test cricket all it's cracked up to be? And he just went, yeah, yeah, it is. And it was really kind of like, kind of raw yeah. feeling, yeah, raw emotion. That, yeah, really authentic. But he said he was knackered, didn't he? And he did look <laughs> yeah. absolutely shattered. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I do fear for him when things don't quite, go quite so well, he's going to last the duration of a test match. But um, it obviously puts so much into it. And he's, that's, I, I re- he's, he's obviously, he's got kind of cult hero uh, potential, hasn't he? Yeah, definitely. And he's had to wait a long time for it. Uh, so it's, it's great to see him doing doing so well. And opening the batting as well. Yeah. As well. So he's done an amazing, an amazing Another tour. rounder Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, superb stuff by Jack Leach. Uh, the, the bowler of the winter for England, no doubt. Uh, 18 wickets out there. But we'll come to the, the nuts and bolts of that series and what to look forward to uh, as England move on to the West Indies in the new year. Um, talking of which, my moment of the, of the week was yesterday uh, and a, a lunch a lunch date, if you like, with Jason Holder, who's who's over in, in, in London just getting a bit, of, a bit of treatment on a... On an iffy shoulder and an iffy ankle, but he's insisted that he'll be fit and ready to go to captain that side next January. Um, and what a classy individual. As my first question, typically garbled, was, you're 27, you seem like you've been around forever. Uh, and it does feel like that. He's been captain 27 of his 35 test matches. He's captained the West Indies. He was given the job age 23 in the build-up to that World Cup. If ever it's a poison chalice in sport, then it's that one. Uh, and he's dealt with the slings and arrows uh, with real class and dignity, I think. He's a very articulate bloke. Um, he's clearly a deep thinker about the game. He explained almost reluctantly, wearily, that he's always been captain ever since he was about nine years old. Every team he's played in, he's captained. Uh-huh. So this was, this was written in the runes that this is what, this is what he would have to, have to take on. Um, and I thought he might be a bit evasive here and there especially with regards to the structures of West Indian cricket and how famously uh, dysfunctional they are uh, but he wasn't he, he called it as he saw it and and I got the impression of a, of a man now who's who recognizes that he's a top top cricketer you know and he said himself he knows his ranking he's third in the, the ICC's all-rounder rankings and I got the impression that he now feels like this is his his show to really influence uh, the future of West Indian cricket, and and it was impressive. You know, there was a kind of statesman-like quality to the bloke. He does seem to have become a, a, a proper player as well. In the sense, I think because he was named captain, there was a sort of perhaps suspicion that he was not, if not a specialist captain, that that was a key part of his selection. But his bowling over the last year has been phenomenal. We had. At the moment, we're compiling um, Wisden Cricket Monthly's teams of the year, and we've had a panel of 24, 25 cricket writers. 
and looking through the to, to compile that side, looking through the stats, I think he's averaging fourteen with the ball yeah, over over the last yeah. kind of fifteen months or so, which is extraordinary, especially when you think of the pressure on him uh, as captain, and he's also scored runs as well. So he's he's become a, a genuinely excellent cricketer in a struggling team, and perhaps doesn't always get the credit for that. Yeah, just on the on young players coming through as well, he was very good on that. Um, he he didn't varnish it at all. He made it quite clear that we've got a lot of talent, but the fitness is an issue, the discipline is an issue, the the game sense is an issue, and the maturity is an issue. And and he, he kind of wearily smiled when I mentioned a few names. Um, it was impressive because there's, he's, he's not trying to, to polish this this any other way. You know, he recognises that there's a big job to do, and that he, for better or for worse, is the man to lead them through it. You know, I was impressed. I, I wish him wish him the best of luck, and he's going to join us at the Hanover for a, for a drink up next week. Right, of course he yeah. is. Yeah. Um, okay, moving on then to the uh, upcoming. Uh, humdinger down in Australia, um, four test matches. India are visiting Australia. Australia are obviously infamously shorn of, of their, their two two gun players. Um, Kohli's leading that team. Uh, everything points to an India win, uh, but this is Australia in their backyard and they've never been beaten by India in a test series down under. Uh, we, because we're lucky like that, have uh, the indomitable Adam Collins uh, down in Australia, it's post-midnight in Sydney. He's probably riding high after a block party gig that he's just been to. I can already hear him labelling it as seminal. He's jet-lagged to within an inch of his life uh, and with India t- in town and a Michael Clark morsel to unpick. Uh, it's over to you, Adam Collins. How are you doing? I'm well, Phil. It's been a, a long way. I'm about four stops into a very long commute home from Antigua. I haven't unpacked my bag yet. Superb. Well, it, it was ever thus, mate. Uh, you've been you've been in Australia 48 hours. Uh, probably too tricky to, to get a sense of the mood around the place just yet. Um, but Michael Clark's already jumped in two feet. So so the phony war is, is, is riding into next week. Yeah, that's right. That's the main conversation right now, really, about the, the test series ahead. It's Michael Clark had a, a fairly decent uh, bite of the cherry on radio a few days ago. Um, his main position, if you like, is that Australia will not win anything if they wish to be liked, um, which was an interesting comment because I'm not sure they've ever actually said they wish to be liked by opposing sides. And um, that's exactly what Tim Payne said when he was asked about it the next day. He said that we, we don't wish to be liked by opposing sides. We wish to be respected. So uh, I'm not sure whether mm-hmm. necessarily that, that went over particularly well with the side. Uh, and then he got stuck into a, a broadcaster who um, who, who uh, critiques that position. That's Jared Waitley, a, a radio commentator and broadcaster here. He, um, he uh, made his position uh, known about Clark's comments and Clark bit back with a, a statement on Twitter, which um, as is the custom these days. So uh, that's been the main sideshow the last couple of days. Does does Michael Clark seem intent on uh, making himself the the most unpopular modern Australian cricketer in, in recent memory, or, or is that an unfair and tabloid way of approaching this? Oh, look, little from column A, little from column B. I mean, I think that um, what he said is actually uh, well supported by a lot of people. I mean, this is the thing, right? So the Australian side have to win back respect this year. This is the main thing that Tim Payne talks about, and and, and that's sort of well understood by. Um, people following the game but at the same time uh, we all know that the most important thing for Australian cricket at all times in all places and everywhere is winning Uh, if we learn anything from the cultural review a couple of weeks ago it's that so uh, they're they're sort of two slightly competing concepts I mean they shouldn't be necessarily right it should be uh, possible to 
uh, win a game of cricket or compete in a game of cricket or a series, if you like, if, uh, if, if you're looking at the, uh, in a broader sense without having to um, play in a way which, which uh, oversteps uh, in a way that happened in South Africa. And of, of course, that should be the case. But um, given they are so significantly depleted without Steve Smith and David Warner, and to a lesser, lesser extent, Cameron Bancroft, at home in an Australian summer against the number one ranked side in the world, uh, the pressure will be there from the get-go. If they don't perform, they'll, they'll, it'll be very hard for, I think, fans to uncouple those two things. They'll, um, they'll, they'll see a side which is underperforming and, and they'll draw a contrast to um, where they're, the way they're playing now as it's perceived, rightly or otherwise, compared to last year. Can you see a way through this for Australia to emerge victorious and to maintain that record of never having been beaten by India on home soil? Oh look, there's a way on the basis that they are at home, but you've got to say rationally, it's a, it, 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 it's not likely, it's possible, but it's not probable. Um, India's batting lineup and Australia's bowling lineup, they're they're both top trumps, are they? Really, you can't you can't uh, you can't really see a way that Australia's bowlers won't find a way to 20 wickets, and by the same token, you you, you can't sort of see a way that. India's batsmen won't influence a series. It's the other side of the equation which will dictate whether Australia can compete. Can their batsmen um, do well enough to bat for days at a time against the bowling lineup? As we saw in the English summer, this is not the same Indian bowling lineup that we're used to. We're, we're accustomed to them being quite good um, spin operators, especially at home, but, but useless away, especially with the seam up. But that wasn't the experience during the northern summer. So um, I think that with a moving ball, if that's the case, it's going to be very hard for a, a fairly depleted Australian batting lineup to, to bat for those lengths of time, which, which they'll need to in order to compete across four test matches. If they were uh, to compete with the bat, who, who are we looking at? Kawaja is fit, uh, I believe, and obviously had a kind of coming of age. Uh, tour of the UAE, uh, where he turned up as a senior player, having been on the fringes for a couple of years, really. Um, are you looking to him, or are there one or two other bolters that could come through? It has to be him. I mean, Usman Khawaja has been playing test cricket longer than Steve Smith and longer than David Warner, indeed longer than anyone in the side, unless I'm missing anyone off the top of my head. He's been going around since 10-11, and you say it was a watershed series in the UAE. Really, this is the time for him to be the leader that he's talked about being for a long time. Uh, Aaron Finch has also played a lot of international cricket. He'll open in, in the test side, um, despite the fact that he isn't opening for his state. Now, that was a, a point of contention earlier in the week. He ended up uh, batting at number three for Victoria, but in within the first over in both innings due to the fact that um, Travis Dean made a pair. So that ended up being a bit of a moot point. But, but mm. Aaron Finch hasn't traditionally opened in red ball cricket in Australia in recent years. So I think a, a lot of... Uh, expectation is on his shoulders given the experience he's got in white ball cricket, the fact that he captains both the one-day side and the T20 side but hasn't played a test match on home soil. So immediately uh, the pressure will turn on to Aaron Finch. Uh, Marcus Harris has been given an opportunity to to play in the test side uh, for the first time. Marcus Harris um, has sort of earned his spot with a body of work over the last three years. Uh, Made a double hundred to start the Sheffield Shield season. He's, He's the sort of player who you'd expect will um, be, be well-conditioned to playing good, fast bowling. That's how you succeed at shield level. So he, he's one to watch. He, he wasn't in the frame at the start of the season. Uh, got into the side through through a weight of runs early in the year. So he, he's probably uh, perfectly positioned to do well, despite the fact that he wasn't quite in the frame three or four weeks ago. So I'd be, I'd be thinking Kawaja, but also Harris, who's coming into the team. And, it, and it's sort of the Marsh brothers. The much maligned Marsh brothers will both play. 
Um, we saw how effective they are um, in Australian conditions. Shaw Marsh has actually started the, the Sheffield Shield season wonderfully as well. So he's in good nick, despite the fact that he had a stinker in the UAE. So, um, you know, a bit of usual suspects in, in Kawaja, Marsh and Marsh. But looking at Marcus Harris and Aaron Finch um, first getting an opportunity in Australia, whether they can influence a series, that's a pretty good incentive. Um, all right, just finally then on this, um, if there is a way out of it for Australia, then obviously they've got to win a few tosses and throw the ball to the quicks. Um, Stark, Cummins, both fit. Is Pattinson involved? I saw that he was involved in the Sheffield Shield earlier in the season. Is he back in? Only in my dreams. Uh, look, he's, uh, he, he's playing shield cricket and, uh, and bowling fast, but he's not at that point yet. He's not yet um, been bowling long spells. I think he bowled. Um, 12 overs in, in the second innings last week when Victoria had a long day in the dirt. So he's not quite at that point where they could um, throw him up for national selection. But as you say, Stark um, and Hazelwood and Cummins, we saw on home soil last year how potent that trio can be. And the experience, of course, of Nathan Lyon is bowled beautifully to start the year. So there's no real issues about the bowling. Uh, this is world-class attack. Um, there, there, there's... That, that, that's what's easily forgotten in all of this is that you have uh, three of the, the, the premier fast bowlers in the world on their day and they, they bowl particularly well together alongside Nathan Lyon. So I don't think there'll be a bolter. In terms of the other bowlers in the squad, if anyone were to not come up or break down, um, Chris Tremaine, the Victorian, who's had three massive shield seasons. He's earned his way into the side, a, a bit of an unorthodox action, but he bowls quick. And, and Peter Siddle, the evergreen Peter Siddle, who at age 33 gets another chance to be in the test squad. Uh, I think he's probably there as much as anything for experience and a, and, a, and a good, safe pair of hands around the dressing rooms and probably looking ahead to, to him being used more in the Ashes series next year. Uh, the attendance numbers and the viewing figures weren't great for the early part of the summer. What, what do you think they're going to be like for this test series? Obviously, the first five, five days since... The, the Cape Town massacre. So, so how do you see it? Well, they're in an advantage on the basis that the first test match is the Adelaide test and that's become a bit of a destination test match for cricket tourists in recent years. Uh, it's a test match at the right time of year. It's, it's a daytime test for the first time in four years. So I think they'll do quite well in Adelaide. And then Perth, it's the first test match at the new... Um, the new Perth Stadium. So, they'll, they'll, again, there'll they'll be some history to that as well. So, I think that um, the first two tests will be fine. Then you've got Boxing Day and then you've got Sydney. So, and, and, of course, it's India, right, isn't it? So, it, it wouldn't matter if they, if they were playing on the moon. That they, they'd get a fantastic turnout of Indian supporters. I mean, I was at the SCG watching a bit of the, uh, the, the, um, the warm-up game today between an Australian eleven and India, and there was plenty of Indians even watching a game where I think it's 15 a side or something ridiculous. It's not got first-class status, but um, people still turn out to watch this Indian side no matter where they go. So I don't think that's as much of an issue when, you, when, you, when you're talking about the Test Arena where there's that sort of natural Australian affinity, and yeah, they're sort of helped along by the venues they're playing at. Superb. Um, all right. Moving it forward, obviously, uh, the spectre of the ashes is heavy over all of these conversations. Um, and you've got a bone to pick uh, about the scheduling for next summer. Yeah, I do. Uh, you obviously saw me tweeting about it. So the, uh, the, look, the, the, the Australian warm-up game is against Australia A. So, I mean, gone are the days of playing several first-class games. And we're conditioned to that, of course. There, it hasn't been that way for at least four or five Ashes tours now. But, I mean... Australia versus Australia A is the one tour game. Feels a bit limp. I wrote about this in May that they had an opportunity to potentially play a test match against Ireland before the, the first test and they didn't think there was enough time to realistically pull that off between the World Cup final and the first test. And look, that's, that's a fair point. But, um, well, I say it's a fair point. It, it's, a, it's a point that you can bolster an argument around. But 
Well, I mean, England are playing a test match against Ireland between the World Cup final and the first test match against Australia in the Ashes. So that, that seems like an opportunity missed and one that England was savvy enough to pick up. I mean, we, we, we heard from the Pakistan camp when they thrashed England at Lords uh, earlier in the year. They said a massive part of their preparation was having a, a, a test match beforehand because of the added pressure uh, that comes with playing at that standard of the game. So, uh, look, it, it's a shame, I think, that... Uh, touring games or tour matches over the last generation or so have been diminished to such an extent that we now don't even have them anymore. They're, they're playing a, an intra-squad match between Australia and Australia A. I mean, I just think that's a, that's a sad decline and something that the ICC are frustrated about and I hope they find a way to intervene at some point soon. Mate, it's fabulous as ever to hear your thoughts. Your voice is crackling. You've got to get that back before next week. <laughs> get that back before next week and no doubt we'll be talking again um, midway through the, se- the series and onwards and onwards. Take it easy, mate. Get some sleep. Uh, hope block party went well and we'll, we'll talk again. Yeah, I think that the combination of lack of sleep and, and just going to a, a fairly high-octane gig has, has led towards a scratchy voice. I'm sorry about that, but yes, I'll, uh, I'll talk to you soon. Adam Collins, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, uh, so a 3-0 win for Australia. All right, pigs might fly, but a 3-0 win for Australia... Coupled with a 3-0 win for England in the West Indies, we'll see England uh, uh, become the, the number one test team in the world. Considering uh, they were the last in that slot in 2012, that summer when Strauss was toppled by Graham Smith, uh, it's quite a long old stretch. And you felt that they've not been close to that for a number of years, really. Uh, they've been lurking in mid-table. Well, now there's a real energy behind this team. Um, we're going to look through what's just taken place in Sri Lanka. We're going to kind of pick out some of our big main stories of the tour uh, from plenty. You can only really start, for me, with, with Ben Folkes, which is a kind of fairy tale story. He wasn't even in the squad in the first place. Called up when Bairstow turned an ankle, given the nod for the first test and made a fairy tale uh, debut 100, also kept like a dream. Uh, Patrick Noon from Crickviz, your impression of, Sto- of Folks's impact and what it means as well for the balance of the team. Well, yeah, and I think that the balance of the team is something that's been lacking in recent years. That we've had a lot of all-rounders, you know, problems at the top of the order, and sim- just Folks's mere presence there just somehow helped to knit it all together. Um, and you know, people, a lot of people talk about, been talking rightly about his keeping. I know Alex Stewart said he was the best keeper in the world. Um, Kumar Sangakkara talked very highly about him. I haven't played with him for Surrey. Um, but you know you can't argue his batting as well. He was the leading run scorer in the series for England. Is that right? Yeah, and I've got um, there's a good stat on him that of England players to have played three tests or less in a debut series, only one batsman scored more runs than Folks did in this series, which was David Steele in the 1975 Ashes. He scored three six five. Folks got two seven seven. Good stat there. Patrick. That's impressive. I, like that I wonder if Folks got a, a slab of meat from the local butchers for every run he got. <laughs> Um, it's worth remembering, folks, as well, that he didn't have a great year with the bat. It was fine. He was averaging in the 30s, I think. Didn't hit a century. Instead, he gets out to Sri Lanka and scores 100 in his first test inning. So it's not like he's riding a wave of a purple patch and, and this is the result of it. This is, this is folks kind of in, in normal mode. Uh, so I think that needs to be kind of taken into to account as well. And then the keeping on top of that, we've just got a, a fabulous player who's going to play for England for a very long time, I think. I loved his second innings as well in that first test when he came out. And he, he, he'd been studious throughout the first innings and came out in the second innings and just opened his shoulders and played played the other way. 
which of course is a mark of how how England have gone, showing that adaptability, versatility throughout the series. Um, which brings us to the next point, really. Um, sweep shots in Palakelli. Now, this is your your <laughs> subhead, Patrick. The greatest album ever written. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Block parties follow up. Yeah. Sweep shots in Palakelli. Discuss. Well, so yeah, there was all sorts of stats flying around um, based on this during that test because. Um, yeah, there were more runs and more wickets than any other test match from the sweep shot. That includes reverse sweeps and slog sweeps. So overall, there were 327 runs and 12 wickets just from just from sweeps in that match. God, that is a heavy-duty stat right there. Um, and yeah, and it, I mean, it's stemmed from Butler, really. He came in in that first innings and, for whatever reason, decided that that was the way to go. He played 31 sweeps, scored 51 runs. That was more sweeps in that innings than he did in any other innings of the series. So it wasn't a case of playing his natural game. It was playing the situation. Um, and then, yeah, and it seemed like the, the rest of the team followed suit. And he was out reverse sweeping for 60-odd in that innings, wasn't he? Yeah. And there was, there was not even a murmur of dissent around that. You know, Finally, we've accepted that this is the modern game at work. Yeah. And there, there are no kind of duffers or fuddy-duddies out there anymore kicking off about players playing the modern way. But, yeah. th- but I think this is important to remember because there's no one kicking off about it at the moment because England just won 3-0. And I mean, I'm saying this as much to myself as anyone else, that we need to remember that. You, we can't switch again. So if England, the margins are very small. All have taken a couple of those sweep shots earlier in innings to, to not work out. England ended up with a below par total and we're all criticising them. So you do have to have to remember that. Yeah, and, and Alex, Alex Stewart said an interesting thing in the Sky Sports studio. Um, they were questioning whether they'd have been able to play this way with Alistair Cook still in, in the side. And that, that's not a reflection on, on a poor reflection on Cook. But would he have been able to play in the manner that was required? Would England have felt comfortable playing that way with Cook at the top of the order? And I think we also saw Root grow as a captain um, without Cook there and with only one or um, one of Anderson abroad there as well. He had to take responsibility and, and he, he came out brilliantly of it. I, I love... The image of Owen Morgan at home as well, just like a Bond villain, just kind of watching the fruits of, of his theories all play out. Because if you're talking about, you know, so-called total cricket, the Ben Jones trademark, then 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 Morgan Morgan preempted this this thing. You know, Morgan Morgan showed the way. Uh, Jack Leach said it to me on the phone yesterday. We're, we're all comfortable with failure. We're all prepared to fail, and that is instilled in us. And it seems a bit arse about face, but it makes perfect sense. Jack also said about the Joss Butler innings that you mentioned, he was euphoric apparently in the dressing room afterwards. And he said he'd never seen him react like that to an innings because of the clarity of thought. He'd figured it out. He'd figured it out. And then, of course, the next test match, Butler decides to run down the track to everything. Yeah, so he just, again, seemingly reinvented his game based on the conditions. So, yeah, that that Palakelli innings, he swept 31% of the time. He normally sweeps 4% of the time. Wow. And wow. Then in Colombo, he was down the track 56% of the time, as opposed to 11% of the time he does. And career. then he gave a post-match interview. Yeah, where with Ian Ward on Sky, where um, he, Ward asked him, you know, where, where did this tactic come from? And he just said, as though it was the most normal thing in the world, oh, we were watching one of those cricket classics, and I saw Michael Clark do it to Graham Swan, and I thought, why not give that a go? And it's just, it's kind of a, touch of genius of the man I think to be able to just because you know make no mistake Michael Clark was a brilliant player of spin and to just look at that and be like I'm going to do that and then pull it off is just incredible he yeah. needs coaches as well oh, yeah. he just, just needs Sky Sports yeah. the channels are available of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right 
Uh, England spinners, a lot has been said about them. I don't think we can still quite get our head around England fielding three spinners in a test series and being successful at the doing of it. Uh, I want to throw it forward, really. Joe Harmon, can, can you see these three playing in an 11 again anywhere? Um, I can. I mean, I could see it happening in West Indies, potentially. Uh, I don't think it's likely, but I think it's, it's a possibility. In brackets, Holder said, a little bit of pace, a little bit of pace in these pitches. That's right. what he's asking for. Okay. They, I think they've been wanting that for years, though, and haven't really been able to sure. get it. Sure. Um, and they had Carlos Brathwaite in the studio during the test series as well, talking about, I can't remember which of the pitches, St. Lucia, possibly. Right. Has a bit more pace in it. Mm. Um, but the other two would be more spin dominated. So I could see that happening. I think we're talking about this over lunch, actually, just now that. We are really boring, aren't yeah, we? Just saying, we again, do do this we'll all just, the we'll time. Just, just tell you because you weren't there at the time. Um, <laughs> that Leach taken eighteen wickets in a series, been brilliant. In, in any other time, he would be England's number one spinner. Yeah. Uh, but there's actually a real likelihood that come next summer, he might not play a Test match, possibly with Moen bowling as well as he is. So and many options as well. and batting yeah. as well. Then, so it's just un- unfortunate for Leach. But again, it's just another example of of the wealth of options England have. Like. Folks being dropped down to number eight uh, after scoring a century on, on debut as well. These, yeah. these things keep happening, which shows the, the depth of talent that England have, and it's, it's really exciting. It, it was, there was a sense of destiny, not that that's a real word, and obviously everything just happens by pure chance. But uh, for Rashid to take five for in the first innings of that third test match was great, because uh, it completed the story of the three of them, I mm. think. You know, yeah. Mo, Moeen had... Had, had not dominated, but he'd been the main man in that first test match. Jack Leach had taken five in the second. Uh, and then Rashid, who'd adorned these games, so up to that point, uh, Sri Lanka were, what, 170 for one, I think, first innings of that, yeah. that third test match, and England had only posted 300-odd. Uh, and then between Rashid and Stokes, now if ever you're going to get a yin and yang and pair Jennings. there, Which is like and Jennings, Jennings well. fielding like Mickey Stewart at, th- at short leg, it was great to see Rashid take a first innings five for there, you know, and to, to stroll off bashful as ever, thinning a little bit up top, looking more and more like this kind of wizened old kind of Magus-like leggy. It was great to see for me. Um, I have a real soft spot for him. I don't know if he's going to play more than another dozen test matches over the course of his career, but I think if he can get up to triple figures test, test wickets, this is an English leg spinner we're talking about. Yep. He's already dominant in, in one-day cricket. The best spinner we've ever had in one-day cricket, officially. Yeah. Uh, if he can get up to 100-plus test wickets, I think that completes one hell of a great story, really, for English cricket. Um, and it would be intriguing to see if they can get those three in for, for the West Indies. It would, be, mm. it would be impressive if they can, because at the minute, you're trying to squeeze 15 informed test cricketers into 11. Uh, and this is what they've got to face. Yeah, and you know, I think in a sort of... Let's so, so, so say like a sort of neutral pitch. You'd obviously Broad and Anderson are still a big part of England's plans, so they were only kind of left out in this series because of the conditions. So obviously in the Ashes, you'd expect them both to be there. The Caribbean's probably somewhere in between English pitches and Sri Lanka pitches. So who do they go with? And yeah, I mean, I, I, I tried to sort of write down my team for the Caribbean, and then realised I'd left out um, Rashid, Sam Curran, and then there's also Wokes who hasn't played. You've now got Joffre Archer potentially in the mix as well. Well, Sam Curran's the greatest cricketer in the history of the world, so you can't really <laughs> leave him out. But yeah, exactly. You, you do highlight the problems, uh, but they're good problems and all of that. Um, in your team, Burns and Jennings opens the batting. Joe, same for you in the West Indies, I would uh, yeah, venture. Definitely, definitely. Um, 
they are both still finding their way in the game. One's yeah. obviously played a little bit more than the other, but there's not an immediate, there's not much daylight really between the two of them. They're still Which, still feeling their way. And Bayless was quite frank about that after the final test. He was asked, "Are these two nailed down their spots?" And and quite clearly they haven't. But a coach might be more, other coaches might be more inclined to give them a bit of a pat on the back. And he he didn't. He just said no. Yeah. They'll start in the West Indies, or pretty much definitely start in the West Indies, and we'll see how they go there. Uh, which I think is the right right approach because Burns, what averaging mid twenties for the series, yeah, and he did. which doesn't tell the whole story. I know because he, he he played well when he was in. He also got run out and caught down the leg side, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, he was sort of finding ways to get out, which is a bit worrying. But yeah, I think he did, he did enough. You know, he got a fifty and a forty three in Palakeli. Um He always seems to be batting at four in the morning UK time. So <laughs> yeah. I can't say I saw every ball of the of the series. You can't do an in depth technical analysis because <laughs> no, we were asleep. <laughs> Well, that's his fault for not staying in long enough. Yeah, no, you're right. The, you're right. He looked great in the in the blue England helmet. That, that's enough for yeah. me. So there's another <laughs> six test matches just on the back of that. Okay, um, I want to come finally to uh, to Ben Stokes, um, uh, who the garnish, the garnish, the Alf garnish. Um, yeah. Now, you talk about Bayliss quotes. Bayliss was asked about Stokes by some cheeky journalist at the end because his numbers, as ever, do not scream. Uh, the iconic cricketer that many people consider him to be. And Bayliss said, it was his first name on my team sheet every time. Um, why, Joe Harmon, is, is Bayliss saying that? And can you give a kind of a sense of, of where Stokes' test career is in light of what's been quite a colourful year? Yeah, I, I love it when Bayliss gets asked about Stokes because he, he can't contain himself. He's just so excited by the player he's got <laughs> at his disposal. And, and, he, and he said himself, he said the numbers don't necessarily scream well beater, but that, that only tells half the story got what he does in all three disciplines. He's got the impact he has on the side. That spell, um, three for whatever it was, in 20 or so, was was a really good example of that. That I mean, three, three for don't count generally when you're st- stacking up a series, but that one had a massive, massive impact. Uh, and there is, I mean, Bayless said this again, that there's, he's been absolutely faultless since the uh, issues of earlier in the year. What are they? <laughs> I forget now, actually. <laughs> um, he's obviously got the disciplinary hearing coming up I mean I'd be amazed if they ban him for, I think they'll just say he's retrospectively served it um, during the Ashes last last year it would be a shocking own goal at this stage wouldn't it it would and I don't think I think when they balance these things out inevitably there will be a bit of what, what criticism will we get if we don't ban him and I think they won't get that much so therefore they won't ban him yeah. any further I think that's I know it's an independent inquiry but they are still it's still got English credit at its heart and and they'll want they want him there, and obviously this is a massive, massive year for England. The Ben Stokes will be, be right at the heart of that. Something extraordinary uh, happened down in the UAE uh, last week, um, and it involves Yasir Shah, who took, I believe, ten wickets in one day, eight in one innings, and then the next two to fall in New Zealand's second innings as they followed on about thousand behind. Um, a leg spinner in the modern game is something that we t- we touch on a lot, not least uh, because we we struggle so much to produce them in England. Uh, Yasir Shah is a beacon uh, amongst modern leg spinners. Um, give me the stats, Patrick Noon, and then we can talk about the nature of, of Yasir Shah and what makes him so special. Yeah, so the standout stat that I think you, you asked me for was how have leg spinners recently, how, how they kind of become, there's more, been more, been more focus on them in recent years. And so, yeah, I looked at it, and since 2000, their strike rate is 66.5. Um, and so if you kind of go back in 20-year chunks, um, that's the lowest that they've that they've been since the 20-year chunk between 1900 and 1919. 
so you know, 100 years basically, they're, mm -hmm. they're more, as threatening as they've been for 100 years. Um, and yeah, and there's, I was trying to think of the reasons why that could be, you know, um, perhaps, you know, pitches changing, becoming flatter, better for batting, if you've got, a, if you've got that wrist spinner, you can find turn where maybe finger spinners can't. Um, and yeah, and Yasir is, is probably the best out there at the moment, I'd say, in, in, terms, of, in terms of wrist spinners, and it's just another kind of box ticked for, for him, I suppose. Yeah, it, it was gratifying to see because he'd been unstoppable for the first couple of years, Joe, mm. right? And then yeah. there was a slight falling away, yeah. statistically, as, as people maybe worked him out a little bit. So it's great to see him back and as dominant uh, as he was in the, those early years. Mm. Do you find that? Um, yeah, I mean, you're well, waiting for a question. You know, there. I was waiting for a question. Wasn't I thought you were just sort of going to continue. Yeah. Um, well, I can do that if you want to. Yeah, I mean, I saw. So he's he's on course to be the fastest to 200 Test wickets. Is yes, that right? I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. Cool. To beat Ashwin. Yeah. Yeah. Which I was really surprised at because, as you say, he had that electric start to Test cricket. I really, in my in my head, it faded quite badly up until this moment. But he's obviously kept on picking up wickets. If he's not. I suppose he was part of a very, very strong Pakistan side. He briefly got to number one and, mm. and sort of led the charge on the bowling front with that. Uh, Pakistan have, have dipped off a little bit and I've equated that with his form. But it is remarkable the amount of wickets he continues to take. And he showed how his tour over here, last tour over here, uh, obviously not last summer, but the one before that, he took a match-winning five for didn't he? Lords in the uh, first Lords, place. yeah. So. And, then, and then faded slightly, yeah. Kind of yeah. microcosm of his career a little bit, I suppose. Mm. But he, So he's, he's shown as well that he's not a one-trick pony. He doesn't just do it mm. in, in the UAE. Um, he is the, the complete bowler. And it's an interesting question where this, this productivity for leg spinners come from. I wonder if batsmen are more inclined to attack them than they previously yeah. were and therefore lose their wickets more often as well. I mean, I'm sure that's... True across the board with batting now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking at his numbers now, like this year he's averaging twenty-one. That's the lowest he's had in a calendar year. So just yeah. So what's the average? Thirty-nine in two thousand and sixteen. So that was the slump, yeah. the slump that we're referring to. But still took forty-six wickets in that year. So the the numbers keep coming. Yeah, it is great to see uh, leg spinners refusing to die. Um, they are remarkably resilient uh, parts of this this beautiful game of ours. Uh, and it's a theme on our podcast, Joe, every few weeks. We, we do mention Matt Parkinson, but I always find it irresistible. And I know he's got a stress fracture at the minute, um, so he's not part of the Lions tour. But if I get excited about Adil Rashid, you imagine how I'm going to be in two years' time about Matt Parkinson. Anyway. He's some first-class cricket before that, though. That's the problem. Nah, no, no, just chuck, just him, chuck in. him in. Chuck him in there. Okay, we've got through half hour or so, Joe, uh, without having mentioned uh, events on Saturday night um, uh, down in Antigua, mm. uh, where England... Uh, tanked, in truth, um, in the final against Australia. You were watching it. You, you'd, you'd taken a drink, I believe. I'd had a, had a couple. Yeah, just um, to calm your nerves. To calm my nerves, exactly. Um, but as it turned out, there weren't many... Well, it was an odd game, wasn't it? Because I think Mark Robinson said at the end, they missed the chance here because Australia were really nervy in the field. It looked appalling in the field, really. But England's batting performance was, was even worse and they just couldn't capitalise on that at all. It was a bit... In lots of ways, the tournament was a big, big success. In other ways, it didn't quite catch fire. Really, you didn't have that many exciting matches. The, the England West Indies one, which was actually a dead rubber in which the group, was, yeah. Was, yeah. was the most exciting game of the tournament, really. Uh, and the final was sort of indicative of that. I mean, you've got to credit Australia with the bat; they were extremely professional, um, got the job done with no fuss at all. And actually, those small totals in women's cricket often aren't that easy to chase down. It was an odd game because in the end, if you look at it, you think it's just an absolute walk in the park. But I think if England had managed to get up to 125, 130, it might have been a bit 
twitchier. That was the frustration. It, the just it, the kind of savviness that was lacking, uh, perhaps reminiscent of the kind of pre-Robinson uh, time when they when they did lose wickets in in clusters. Um, we saw in the World Cup last summer they held their nerve brilliantly under some situation well situations they should never have got out of and they managed to, mm-hmm. to pull it back. And I think you've got to say not having Sarah Taylor, not having Catherine Brunt, uh, that has a massive impact on not just their talents but the the kind of the level. Not that Catherine Brunt's got the most level of heads actually, but you know the experience they they bring <laughs> to the whole thing. No comment. Um, that said, there was some. I mean, it, Sophia Dunkley I thought was was fantastic in the and the match against West Indies. Um, and there were some positives to take from it, and overall, uh, getting to the final, it's not an underachievement. Yep. Uh, it was just a bit of a shame they couldn't produce more of a performance on the on the big day itself. Uh, just briefly on that, Claire Connor at the end said, you know, we've, we've, we've got a long way to go yet. We have 20 professional cricketers in England against over 100 in Australia, and, and you mentioned Sophia Dunkley. It's a really good example, you know, that she has come through as a modern player having experienced the Kia, the Kia Super League, but she's one of a small handful, really, you know, and and that, that discrepancy does still speak of a game still trying to find its level uh, across the board, really, in Australia, as we kind of knew in our heart of hearts, are still streets ahead of the rest. All right, gentlemen, finally, uh, a week ahead. Uh, it keeps on rolling, this, this review. Uh, Patrick, what are you looking forward to? Well, I'm looking forward to the third test of the Pakistan New Zealand series it's been a bit topsy-turvy to say the least where are we at at the minute so it's one all and after two tests Pakistan somehow contrived to lose the first test by four runs and then absolutely battered New Zealand in the second so yeah it's been a bit up and down so far so Pakistan yep basically and they're returning to the scene of that ignominious four run defeat with the third test in Abu Dhabi yeah so we'll see how that one plays the crowds will be streaming through the doors yep, yep you'd hope so yeah <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah, we'll see, see how that one goes. Joe Harmon? I'm looking forward to Australia-India getting going. I know we've discussed it in some detail, but I find myself in an odd position where I'd really love Australia to take a 1-0 lead in that series. I think it would set it up really nicely. Uh, my concern from a neutral's point of view is if India kind of romped a victory in the first one, then the series could be done and dusted because this Australian side is uh, is kind of fragile uh, on and off the field, as it seems. So, but yeah, from a neutral's point of view, I want a humdinger of a series, and that means an Australia win in the first test at Adelaide starting this the Thursday. Wednesday night, Thursday Wednesday morning, night, Thursday yeah. Morning, yeah. Um, I think Australia will put up a decent fight, by the way, uh, mm. just on, in brackets. Be, but then I am the world's worst predictor of, of test series results. Um, personally, I'm looking forward to Tuesday night and uh, Mark Church's homecoming. We are actually recording this from Mark Church's commentary box at the Oval. Everyone should know who Mark Church is. He's a phenomenon. He's a brilliant radio commentator. He's been covering Surrey for 15 years and he's been running from the Oval to Lords and back for the last month or so to raise money for pancreatic cancer research. Uh, he is a prince amongst men. There's still a few days left to sponsor him, folks. Please get behind him. He's already raised 25 grand or so. Find him on Twitter, back and across uh, is his handle. Um, and Tuesday night will be a bit of a celebration as he returns, bedraggled, probably uh, bearded and broken, but uh, still fighting the good fight Tuesday night at the Oval. It's only a tenner to come along, so join us if you are in the neighbourhood. Thanks for listening as ever. My name's Phil Walker. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Patrick. And we'll be back next week. Cheers, folks.
Sports Social Podcast Network.